players gathered to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Thoughtseize, Force of Will, Veil of Summer, and many others. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thurabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming. Are you interested in running a CEDH event or want your LGS to do so? Worried about the logistics of it? Fear not! Eminence Gaming's Command Tower software has you covered. You can create and manage tournaments easily, and its unique pairing system ensures you don't get paired against the same players multiple times. Visit eminence.events for details. Hello, and welcome to episode 91 of the Eternal Glory podcast. All is now one. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for this week, available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access, or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U, joined by... Brian Koval, a.k.a. Boston Roll. And Bryant Cook of the Epic Storm. Shout out to our new Patreon subscriber, William, since the last episode. Just one, holding it down here. Hope to see a few more next time. And like Phil said, YouTube membership now opened up. Bryant has done a ton of work getting all of our backlog up on YouTube, as well as the formerly Patreon-exclusive pre-show is now a subscriber-exclusive pre-show that is accessible through YouTube membership. All right, so let's let's talk about where we're going today. We've got two topics for today. Number one, we've got a new set. We've got Phyrexia, all will be one, and we're going to go ahead and talk about some of the top cards from the set, uh, mostly within the context of Legacy, although we'll touch on a couple other formats as well. And then in the second half, we're going to do a little bit of talk about like deck building theory and tuning and specifically figure out how do you decide what to cut from a deck. And you ready to do this, gentlemen? No, I would like at least five more minutes of crying in a ball on the floor first, but like it seems like we're on a busy schedule, so I, I guess we need to just press on anyway. Yeah, we waited long enough for you to get up off the floor and in front of your mic. Okay, uh, that was a weird bit. But our first card we're talking about is Atraxa Grand Unifier. This card costs three, buckle up here, three green, white, blue, black. A seven drop, four colors, plus three colorless. Seven, seven, legendary creature, dash Phyrexian Angel. It has flying, vigilance, death touch, and lifelink. And when it enters the battlefield, reveal the top 10 cards of your library. For each card type, you may put a card of that type among the revealed cards into your hand, with the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. And the card types are Artifact, Battle, Creature, Enchantment, Instant, Land, Planeswalker, and Sorcery. So there's real text on this card, and then we also got a hint that Battle is replacing Tribal as the 8th card type at, at some point in the future. A Twitter stat from this year was that this year had the most words on cards. You would believe that reading Atroxa. You'd be like, yeah, obviously. Let's let's set the baseline here. This card fucks. Okay? Like, let's let's start there. This card is good. This is one of the first big, dumb, fat creatures to rival like Grizzlebrand's spot at the top of the big dumb fat creature hierarchy in Legacy. And we've had some other things sneak in to be playable in these like reanimator show and tell sneak attack typed decks, like say Archon of Cruelty. This card is sweet. This is not just, you know, your casual EDH big dumb bomb. All right, Phil, I'm going to disagree with you here. All right, we're fighting. It's hot take week again. But a seven mana creature should be big, dumb, stupid, whatever. I disagree that this is a Gristlebrand rival. This isn't even in the same realm. When you're looking at a deck like Reanimator, they have Seer's Emissary, they have Archon of Cruelty. Those cards are amazing. They create 
guaranteed card advantage and atroxa especially in a format like legacy so let's say you want to play this in reanimator you're getting like instant land creature sorcery and like maybe animate dead but like cool uh you're never going for this before you go for gristle brand and if they already have gristle brand in play there's other things that they can get to lock up the game where atroxa doesn't lock up the game it's just another big dumb fatty so first of all you're wrong and you will absolutely go for this first sometimes and the reason that you would go for this first is shit went south in the first couple of turns of the game in these times where you can't necessarily afford to both reanimate a Grizzlebrand and then pay life afterwards, Atraxa is an awesome tool to have at your disposal because you get guaranteed cards in situations where you can't afford to pay the 7 life. And I think that's huge. Archon of Cruelty. In any situation where you're almost dead, Archon takes over the game. We'll see. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think I am more likely to be correct than wrong here. This card pitches to Force of Will. I think this card pitches to Grief. This card can be a Natural Order target, a Green Sun target if you're an absolute mad lad and you're going down that route. This card has Vigilance, so you don't end up in those awkward situations where you're not sure whether or not you can swing due to how the combat math is going to work out. So this is going to be a better defensive card. It has Death Touch, so it can take out, you know, the Merktide Regent that has grown because of another Merktide Regent. I, I think this card absolutely slaps. I will weigh in for the first time in five minutes here. Uh, thank you for that discourse, gentlemen, giving me a lot to think about. I think that Bryant is mostly right that Reanimator will not go for this unless something's already gone wrong. Though Phil is also right that this thing is unraceable. Sometimes Grizzlebrand doesn't get there like if you're already at seven or whatever and there's a murktide regent that's eight eight grizzlebrand just gets out muscled the like bolt my own attacker trick so grizzlebrand lifelink doesn't happen atraxa with vigilance and lifelink and flying and death touch will kill anything this reads like grizzlebrand staple to sphinx of the steel wind in a lot of ways though you're unlikely to do the super busted reanimator stuff with this like if turn one and tomb grizzlebrand draw 14 reanimate two more things good luck that's not going to happen with atraxa but uh phil talking about the things outside of reanimator natural ordering for this is hot uh i've played a lot of progenitus in my life and i'm frequently disappointed with that card's performance and what it does to a game and having atraxa is actually like in the realm of castable uh it's like in a a deck with natural order and I don't know, Birds of Paradise, Noble Hierarch, some way to make this happen. This is remotely castable in the fail case, and it's pretty spicy on the natural order case. I, I'm really interested in it for that direction. You would need a a deck like the old natural order rug decks to come back, the mental misstep era top dog. When you look at this card, and I think it's important to talk about it within context, because when we look at natural order currently, it sees play mostly in elf decks. If you want to play Atroxa and Elves, you play it, you could probably pick up Land Creature, maybe Sorcery if there's like a glimpse into your deck. But if you're on like the Newton Reclaimer Elves, you're definitely not hitting Sorcery most of the time. Uh, so it's not actually gaining a whole lot of card advantage. It's mostly just there is a big dumb beater, which might be better than Progenitus. Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, the fact that this thing's really interesting to me because of the reason that Phil mentioned Uh it goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with a Merktide, but there's going to be situations in which it loses to a Merktide. Uh, and I don't think you want that to happen with your payoff spells. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, Grizzlebrand loses to Merktide more than this does. We've got Death Touch on this body. Yeah, but Grizzlebrand draws seven and, you know, it, it does more. You get more bang for your buck. Not if you're at seven when it comes in, which is what we're talking about here. Like, you eat a Surgical, eat a Force of Will, take a few beats from Delver. We've all been there. Uh, I I don't know where. I think the deck build is the squeeze. Like, are you going to play three Grizzlebrands and one of this just in case of those situations versus just max out on Grizzlebrand in deck build? Because I could picture the situation you'd want it in play, but is it worth worse or different when you're not in the fail case? I don't know. Uh, I I'm excited about it for the the other stuff, the natural error stuff. 
pitching to various elementals, uh, endurance, solitude, force of will. There's a lot of colors and a lot of words on this card. You're very close to the reason that I would be excited about this card. And I feel this way about combo decks all the time. And it's secretly why I have a love for Belcher. I'm not joking. I'm not being sarcastic. It's that Belcher is one of the few combo decks in the format, aside from Oops All Spells, that can support Force of Vigor, which is just one of the cleanest answers in Legacy to answering a bunch of the stuff that Phil plays. Like, Phil wants to Trinisphere you, he wants to Chalice you, wants to make sure that you don't get to play the game of Magic. Being green and slotting in a combo is something that is super desirable to me. I'm always looking at how much, how many more green cards do I need to play in order to get closer to Force of Vigor in pretty much every deck I play. And Atroxa, if it ends up being good, and Phil... You could be right. Let's say it is good. It gets you that much closer to being able to play Force of Vigor and Black Red Reanimator. Maybe you have to change your shell. Maybe you end up being more green heavy or Jund Reanimator. I'm not sure. But I'm really interested in the aspect of like maybe they don't have to play um, Serenity in the future and that they can just play for Atroxa, for Force of Vigor, get the job done or whatever. I also wonder if this card is strong enough to be like how do we say this? Like archetype empowering. Like, does this thing being blue and pitch to force of will make it more reasonable to actually play something like blue black reanimator with show and tell in the 75 somewhere? A strategy which has basically fallen off the earth just because like red black reanimator is just very good at doing what it does and tends to be faster than other variants. I did see some players in the queues playing blueback reanimator recently. I think that there ends up being, and like you could play blueback reanimator. I mean, forcible and force of negation are obviously very good cards, but you can only play so many pitch cards, right? Like at some point, your deck has to have cards that it wants to play. And a lot of the versions I've seen recently have force of will, they have grief, they still have unmask. Like that's somewhere between eight and 12 pitches. I don't know. It just like, I think at some point you run out of like cards to pitch or pitchable cards to play because the version I faced also had force and negation, which would bring it up to hypothetically oh, wow. 16. I'm rambling now. I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> Dredge is a deck, especially in vintage that loves a pitch spell. Just force of will, force and negation, force of vigor, load them up. Only one card matters anyway. It's bizarre Baghdad. It's been a long time since we've seen Dread Return Dredge. Like that's kind of invalidated these days on power level of what a bizarre deck can do. But if you give Dredge an enabler that turns on all those free spells, I think we might see it kicking around a little bit. It may not be good long term, but that's space worth exploring, I think. So I've done similar things in Legacy recently where I was specifically trying to find a white black card to play so that I could have something that pitches to both Solitude and Grief. And the options were pretty limited. So I think if you find yourself in similar space, like, look look to this card. It will bridge things in weird ways. Why don't we head over to the next card? Yeah, I was just going to say, that was more than I thought we were going to do on this, but good discussion so far. The Mycosynth Gardens, a land with the type of sphere. It taps for a colorless mana. You can pay one and tap it and filter into a man of any color, or you can pay X, tap the Microsynth Gardens. It becomes a copy of target non-token artifact you control with mana value X. Brian, Phil, can you think of any artifacts that you would like to copy that are cheaply cost cast words? Thanks. Are you referring to Phyrexian Dreadnought right now? Uh, Bryant most certainly is not, but that's what I'm thinking about. I'm sure Bryant is thinking of his, uh, his second wife, Lion's Eye Diamond which is also a powerful one. Uh, I already have some Dreadnought Brews kicking around in my recording queue and in my head. Lion's Eye Diamond is a very exciting thing to copy with this. Uh, Brian, I'm sure you have done a lot of brain work on this already. What are your thoughts? I have. So a lot of people message me immediately. They're like, what lanes are we cutting in the Epic Storm? I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> We're already down to 12 lands. It's tough on a four-color mana base. Some people are talking about five-color currently, so that we can support Abrupt Decay in the board. The Microsoft Gardens would allow for that to happen, I'm willing to admit, but I think it's a lot better in a deck like the Tony Scaponi special, The Epic Gamble, where you're able to 
have more copies of Echo of Aeons to abuse being able to copy Lines Eye Diamond more effectively. On top of that, that deck plays a single Volcanic Island, so that way it can cast its sideboard blue spells with no way to search for it. The Mycosynth Gardens is a strict upgrade if you're just looking to cast your sideboard blue spells to bounce Leyline of the Void or whatever else you're trying to bounce there, so that way you can use your Echo of Aeons. So it just seems like a much better upgrade there it's possible like people always say this and i roll my eyes a little bit but like this card could create a new archetype like that comes out whenever a new spell comes out these players that build combo decks are like oh this might just spawn a new combo deck that can happen but more commonly it's that it slots into a pre-existing deck or that pre-existing deck changes the way that it's shaped to support the new broken thing uh i don't have any i set specifically outside of the epic gamble for the Microsynth gardens but it's powerful i bought a set i'm going to play it i just have to figure stuff out first i will tell you that i got paired against tony about an hour ago who was already testing out the epic gamble with this card so like this it this is a very real card this is the card that in my mind is like the brewer's gem from this set because this can do a lot of things and one of the things that we haven't talked about is my sort of bullshit this can just be a land in the early game that turns into another stacks piece or creature come the the late game right this can just be another copy of a sphere of resistance or whatever in a very annoying way i'd like to point out one small thing when you copy that artifact the micus of the gardens is tapped I've had a number of people respond to my YouTube short from today, like, oh, I want to copy this artifact. That artifact comes into play tapped, and they're looking at it as a way to go up on mana. So, like, they're like, oh, I, I can copy Lotus Bloom. No, that Lotus Bloom is tapped. The reason it works with Lion's Eye Diamond specifically is that Lion's Eye Diamond doesn't tap to sacrifice. It's just discard your hand, sacrifice Lion's Eye Diamond, it taps the Tangle Wire in case you're facing Fell, and then, you know, you add some mana, you do your thing. So, whatever artifact you're copying... It better be useful when it's tapped at least for one turn. Shout out to the old Root Maze Mono Green Madness Survival deck that I played for a while. Uh, was built on the LED is fine tapped clause. Yeah, this card's sweet. Uh, there's also some heat on it for vintage. Uh, you could just flip it into a Black Lotus, a Mox, uh, another lock piece like Phil said. There's some conversation for modern. Uh, is this something Amulet wants? Uh, that deck is all about tutoring lands and uses a one-mana artifact to do its big thing when it does it. There, There's a lot of buzz around this card in a lot of ways. We will find out if it's just too cute or if this actually is the truth in the coming months. I wonder if we're going to see it in any, like, mid-rangey artifact decks. Like, I wonder if this is good enough to slip into, say, an eight-cast deck or a painter deck. It's slower in terms of, like, colored mana production which would definitely matter for the early turns for, you know, your lightning bolts or your emeries or whatever. But like late game, you tend to have extra colored mana floating around anyway. So like that portion doesn't matter. And you can you, you could kind of kind of color fix with an ancient tomb in that, like you can convert some of that colorless mana into colored mana. I'm I'm thinking about this card a lot, but I think I need to see it in action to get a feel for how good it is. Yeah, in, in those like super mid-range Emery decks, this could even double as like Horizon Canopy by just turning into a bobble and popping off into a card in the mid-game when things are getting grindy. There is some significantly less sexy outlets for this, and uh, that's one of them. I didn't consider that. Uh-oh, Bryant is going to drop the call and go into the Storm Discord and be like, guys, 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 Mistress Bobble. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, that is that is there if you want it. I think going back to Phil's point about it in Emery decks or other larger decks like Painter, a lot of these decks struggle for land slots because they're already competing with Ancient Tomb and City of Traders, and sometimes those decks want utility lands like Wasteland or whatever. It's something that we see with the Initiative right now, where its flex spots are basic lands for the Initiative mechanic, and they don't play too many lands outside of like Caracas that are flex lands. I think that my, the Microsoft Gardens is cute, but is it enough in those decks that it's worth playing over one of the other utility lands that those decks traditionally play? I think a good comparison here might be like, is it Take Numa Abandoned Mine? Is that the name of that card? 
the mill. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yep. So a lot of times, anytime I post like a mono black video, someone is like, why not Take Numa? It's just free. And the answer is like, no, utility lands are never free in a wasteland format, in a format with Blood Moon, Back to Basics, Life from the Loam, Recurring Wastelands. Like, all of these lands do come at some cost or another, and sometimes that cost is just simply it's squeezing out a different utility land that might be better. You know, with Painter as an example, is this competing in your colorless slot with Urza Saga? Like, Urza Saga is really good. Yeah, it's not competing with Saga. It's not competing with any artifact land in a deck like that. You need some number of basics at the end of the day. Uh, yeah, if you ever have an opening hand with, like, this Saga and a Goblin Welder, you're going to be pretty disappointed. And you can still turn to the Welder. You do have the filter, but someone's going to break it, though. Let's go on to the card that I am most excited to talk about. I think it's overhyped, but I'd love to talk about it anyway. Yeah, this is the real Storm card in the set. Venerated Rot Priest, a one green creature, Phyrexian Druid, for a 1-2, Toxic 1. Players dealt combat damage by this creature also get a poison counter. Whenever a creature you control becomes the target of a spell, target opponent gets a poison counter. Well, this happens to go very, very, very well with the storm mechanic. If only there was a storm spell that targeted creatures. I don't know, Grape Shot, or one that you may not know, Ground Rift, which is a one red sorcery storm target creature can't block this turn. So you use a spell intended for the opponent on your own creature and you storm them out with Venerated Rot Priest. I never thought that I would love a one mana green creature as much as Xanded Swarm, but here we are. Something very important about this card, and it's subtle, is that this is a 1-2. A lot of these infect style creatures in the past have been 1-1s. Your Blighted Agents, your Ink Moth Nexus, your Glistener Elf, they're 1-1s, and everything in their mother just dies to a Plague Engineer. This one dodges that effect. Phil, I'm going to have an unpopular opinion right now. A lot of the time when people discuss, I know Hot Takes was last week, I'm sorry, but when a lot of people discuss Infect, they mention Plague Engineer. That card has sort of been soft banned out of the format, and people still don't play Infect because they're afraid of Plague Engineer. Uh, black is kind of unplayable at the moment. I mean, it, it stinks to say that. Sorry, Brian, I know that you love your Grixis control decks, but a lot of the black cards just don't hold up to the power creep that has happened. If you're an Infect player, I would get out there. I would start playing your venerated Rot Priest. I mean, people aren't playing Plague Engineer anymore. Go live your best life. I, I largely agree with you. Like, there is a reasonable tier two mono black deck, right? Like the the whole, like, Leyline Helm mono black deck in some variation or another is not as good as something like Delver or Initiative, but it's not embarrassing to take to a tournament. Like that will probably play a couple of Plague Engineers in the sideboard, but even there, it's not like a hundred percent making it into the deck. But if you want to be on an Infect style deck, you still just have to live with all the other stuff that has been printed in the last few years. Your blue white X control decks have prismatic ending now and that's just another turn one answer to your creatures there's better edicts than ever in the form of sudden edict and then shouldred's edict which we'll talk about in a minute and elves and even delver are playing snuff out right now like uh, it's it's the the heyday of snuff out since it was in you know standard this is the most we've seen of this card and solitude is probably at its all-time legacy high as well those are all reasons to not get super excited about Infect, like Black isn't the only problem. But another thing I want to point out about this card is it doesn't just drop into Infect. Not in the the obvious way, because it has Toxic 1. It doesn't have Infect. Toxic 1 means that when this deals damage to a player, or combat damage, they also get one poison counter. Not equal to the power. Uh, if you invigorate this thing, your opponent will take 5 damage and get 1 poison. If you invigorate Berserk this thing, your opponent will take 10 damage and get 1 poison. This is does not replace Glistener Elf straight up. Uh, this might be like a 5th or 6th 1-drop Infect creature, if that's what you're looking for, or you board it in in removal-heavy matchups. But this is, this is not the rate that we're used to on 
modern and legacy level infect cards. This is a different thing. I tried to scryfall it before asking the question, but I remember being a kid and there being like a bunch of cards from like homelands up until alliances that gave your opponent a single poison counter at a time, but it was a different keyword. And uh, when looking in scryfall, I just can't find it. Do you happen to remember what it was? Um, I don't believe it was keyworded. Uh, like Swamp Mosquito is one of these cards. Uh, I'll look that up. Uh, Poisonous was on some cards in Time Spiral. And I think Poisonous is... So Poisonous is a trigger. And Toxic is like lifelink. It's just a property of the damage. So there's a little bit difference there. Uh, old cards like Swamp Mosquito straight up just say, when this attacks and isn't blocked, Defender gets a poison counter. And it wasn't keyworded back then. That is correct. I'm looking at it now. Apparently it was also in Time Spiral, uh, the more you know. Yeah, yeah. Time Spiral had Poisonous on a maybe just the Sliver. Or is there more than one Poisonous card? Uh, there was Snake Cult Initiation that granted the Enchanted Creature Poisonous 3. But that and Virulent Sliver are the only printed uh, Poisonous. And Poisonous is when this deals damage, there is a trigger that creates a poison counter. And Toxic is just a property of the damage. This also happens alongside the damage. Virulent Sliver used to be a key win condition in Vintage. And Popper. And it won the limited Pro Tour. Turns out Poison is pretty messed up. Alright, one other thing that I want to point out here. The wording of this card is whenever a creature you control becomes the target of a spell. So, in the hypothetical world where you control multiple of these, each one of those is going to trigger. Also, if you control a venerated rot priest and one of your other creatures gets targeted, guess what? Still poison counter. Yeah, I think we're going to see more of this in crazy, like, uh, Jax-style combo decks more than we are going to see it in Infect. Uh, I think that folks are going to try it, and they're going to quickly realize that they can't dump their Invigorates onto it and win the game, and therefore it's not really... doesn't really fit into what Infect has done historically. We might see a rebuild... I know there's some dedicated Infect players out there who keep working on the deck. I queue into it once in a while. I think it's the same three people. They're going to have ideas, and they're probably better than mine. But uh, this is not Glistener Elf. This card will slot better into the Gruel Breach decks in Modern, combining with Ground Rift, than I think it will be a better card. Or it will be better in Modern than Legacy. I guess that's what I'm trying to say here. Legacy, you have Snuff Out Swords... All that good stuff, Force of Will. Modern, you have some of that, but those cards are less effective, and the format's just more suited for a lower power level combo like this. Right, and all of the protection spells result in two poison counters. Like, opponent bolts this, you find Zavaswood, it's been targeted by two spells this turn. Count it. So that incidental poke back and forth is pretty interesting if you get grindy, and then you're just always threatening a combo. In terms of power level, this feels to me kind of like it's going to be a Witherbloom Apprentice Chain of Smog sort of thing, where like, this will probably be around, but it's probably not going to be one of the best combo things you can be doing in the format. Cold take, I still think the Witherbloom combo is better, and it's more compact. I would agree with that. Yeah, the, the Witherbloom thing you can put into any deck with black and green mana and just sort of... Like, I've played against Bug Delver all the way up to Nick Fit. Uh, any shell, you can just pop those two cards in, and off you go. The Rot Priest requires dedicated build around. Alright, the next card on our list is Mercurial Spell Dancer, which is one blue and a colorless for a Phyrexian Rogue. It's an unblockable 2-1. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put an oil counter on it. Whenever it deals combat damage to a player, you may remove two oil counters from it. If you do, when you cast your next instant or sorcery spell this turn, copy that spell, and you can choose new targets for the copy. So I have this somewhere below Dreadhorde Arcanist and above Ledger Shredder, as far as versions of this effect that we've seen. I think it's closer to Ledger Shredder than Arcanist, but I kind of hope I'm wrong, because... The investment to get your oil counters onto this thing compared to Dreadhorde Arcanus investment of put spells in your deck is much higher. There will be fail cases for this. Uh, there will be spots where it just gets removed with one oil counter on it, or you stack up two counters pre-combat, then they just pick it off before attacks. Uh, there's 
This is more fragile and takes more setup than Arcanus, which was obviously busted and ended up getting banned. But I mean, the bones are there. I don't disagree with you. I think a big difference here is that obviously only one toughness, it's going to die to more cards. But right now, the format's seen more copies of Red Elemental Blast, Pyroblast than ever. It's part of the reason why Painter has been so successful. And another blue card that just dies to those, I think it's a tough ask. I guess that's what I'm trying to say here. And is it closer to Ledger Shredder than Arcanist? Probably. But we don't see a lot of Ledger Shredders in Legacy either. Yeah, I think it's above that. And we will see this compared to Ledger Shredder, which we only see in that Delverless Delver deck that's also pretty much fallen off. I think the big test for this thing is how good is 2-1 unblockable when you're not doing the thing. I don't know. Delver... Delver frequently wants like four more points of damage to finish a game or get you into bolt range. Uh, if you pair this with Stoneforge Mystic, it can carry a weapon and just start getting in through blockers. There's, I think that's where we want to look at. Uh, like I would not put this into band control just to hope to double an expressive iteration someday, but I would put it into some attacking blue decks. Okay, I I think this card is very interesting in an in an initiative world where you are trying to fight over the Undercity, and we are seeing people sideboard things like Douthy Voidwalker that are effectively unblockable. I think an unblockable attacker that has the potential to give you one more expressive iteration in matchups where, like, out-expressive iterationing the other person can be a really big deal. Like, this is an appealing card, and I'm already starting to see... Twitter screenshots of people testing this card out in like that pseudo Delver shell. That's a really good point, Phil. I didn't consider it with the initiative and wanting to steal the initiative. I really do like that. But one thing that I think about regarding Delver deck construction is there's currently a battle between people that want to increase more copies of Mishra's Bobble to maximize your expressive iterations. If you're someone that likes Ledger Shredder, that sort of thing. But a lot of Delver players are like, I won't go higher than two because it doesn't trigger your Delver secrets. And the more busted creatures that are printed, the closer and closer they become to just outright cutting Delver and playing all the spells they actually want to play. So is this the card that gets them to that point? Probably not. But also, I'm not a Delver player. I could just be wrong. Yeah, two is a lot more than one on the mana. Uh, Two power is a lot less than three on the attack. But also... Dragon's Rage Channeler does trigger off Mishra's Bauble, and so does Mercurial Spellcaster. You can build up the oil counters. It's just non-creature spell, not instant or sorcery. So if they want to go... It's kind of weird, because the, the baubles send them lower to the ground, but Spell Dancer sends them higher up. Uh, kind of a give and take on the overall mana value of your deck there. It's worth noting, it also only copies instant or sorcery, so if your last card in hand is another bobble, it doesn't help. Right. Yeah, you need to oil it up, connect, and then also have a spell on a turn where it connects. Because it's not like once you're oiled up, remove it as an activated ability, double your next thing. You have to connect on a turn when it's oiled up, and then you start to double the spell that has to be in your hand already. I'm going to be honest, Brian. You're making me really uncomfortable talking about this card all nice and oiled up. Listen, if we don't talk about this card being oiled up as like community parlance for meaning that it's online i don't know what we're even doing as human beings anymore so ultimate judgment on this card thumbs up to being the appropriate power level for legacy but probably not a format changer does that feel about accurate yeah uh there's a world where this actually is red horde arcanist and we're all miserable in three months there's also a world where this is ledger shredder and we don't even see it in three months I'm going to be trying it. You better believe it. I've got requests in my recording queue. As soon as I can get my hands on this, buddy, there's going to be some brews coming. Uh, This has me excited to try and do stuff, but uh, I'm not like, oh my God, what have they done? Speaking of, oh my God, what have they done? Minor misstep. I am really excited about this card. A one mana blue instant counter target spell with mana value one or less. Or less is pretty key here. It's not the same thing as Mental Misstep. Obviously, there's no Phyrexian mana attached to it, but it can hit zero. I think I would have really loved to have seen 
a spell that had no mana paid for it, if that makes sense. Like counter target spell or spell with that had no mana paid. So that way you could counter a force oh, of will. Oh no, with no, this. no. We're uh, not taking force of will out with this as well. Absolutely. I think that would have been amazing. But as it's currently printed, this card is really exciting. I'm mostly curious to test it in CDH, but I think it's also going to be a straight banger for modern, where the format is getting lower and lower to the ground right now. I think that minor misstep is going to be an all-star in modern. In legacy, I'm not so sure. I think it will be fine. In Legacy, you're competing with so many cyborg slots. Like, you have your Red Elemental Blast. Uh, this can counter a Red Blast uh, very effectively in Legacy, which is something that, like, if you want to fight over Red Blast in the mirror right now, you kind of have to leave in Force of Will or have Blue Blast, which I don't know if that's something you want to be doing. But I'll let Brian really share his opinion here about Legacy because I'm obviously not the blue player among us. Yeah, this card's exciting, obviously. Um, I've already been tagged uh, somebody 5-0'd with four copies of this in some medium-sized blue deck. Uh, Anzi just posted a screenshot right before we started recording of uh, Crumbox getting countered by this. It's exciting space, and I guess it depends on how... I mean, it's going to flow with the metagame. Like, there was a time where Spell Snare was just uh, the the rate in Legacy, like the old Rug Delver Mirror when every good card in Legacy was like Stoneforge, Mystic, Tarmogoyf, whatever, Spell Snare, Reign Supreme. Minor misstep hits a lot of stuff in the format, also misses a lot of stuff in the format. So uh, we'll see what the correct numbers are and how the metagame shifts to it. Maybe this is the card that makes Delver get cut for Mercurial Spell Dancer. Fewer one drops, no worries. Let it ride. I think there's an interesting dynamic here between days and minor misstep. When you look at days, it punishes you for playing larger cards. So but Legacy is a format for the last 15 plus years has tried to go smaller and smaller so that days is less effective. And now minor misstep exists, which punishes you for going smaller. So you now either have to choose to play into minor misstep with your deck building or play into days. One thing that I think is really interesting about this card is it's going to have very high variance play versus draw. Like, if you are on the play and you have that chance to counter the initial Chrome Mox, Dragon Rage, Channeler, Lion's Eye Diamond, whatever with this card, it's going to feel very powerful. And I think on the draw, when you're already sort of behind on board in some capacity, I'm a lot less excited about this card. Like, the power level is still appropriate, but I don't know. This would be a card that I'd be maybe thinking about sideboarding out some number of when I'm on the draw. Yeah, this is as exciting on the play as Spell Snare is on the draw. So you get the kind of flip-flop in the most obvious comparison that's still legal. Uh, I, I'm just excited to be an Uro gamer looking at this card, having this, you know, days plus mental or minor misstep conversation, like, I'll just hit my land drops and cast a three a three drop creature. Let's do that. Uh, hopefully this does, in a way, slow the format down by just incentivizing ones and zeros. But uh, uh, Bryant, I'm sorry to say uh, you're going to be staring down a lot of minor missteps on your LEDs and and uh, silences. You're not playing Veil anymore, right? Uh, I'm currently playing Silence, yes. I think the one thing or the one concern I have for this card is when you look at the, the pinnacle of the Legacy metagame at the moment... Minor Misstep doesn't answer Murktide Regent. It doesn't answer White Plume Adventure. And then the third best deck in the format, at least currently, in my opinion, is Painter. It doesn't counter Painter Servant. And while it does counter Grindstone, Grindstone usually comes into play off of Versus Saga. It counters Blast and stuff there, but I think Minor Misstep counters a lot of role players and not key cards. And do you want to build your deck? So that way you're focusing on role players or do you want to focus on the things that actually matter in the matchups? And I, I don't know. I think that's kind of interesting. I was thinking about that a lot when I was making show notes like this hits so many cards. But if I think about what's the most important thing in Blue Red Delver, I'm thinking about either EI or Merktide region. And this misses both of those. If I'm thinking about the initiative deck, like, sure, you can hit a Chrome Mox but you're not hitting any of those hate bears with this. You're not hitting the cards that actually give you the initiative. You're not hitting the touch the spirit realm. That's a removal spell or a blink spell for these things. It misses a lot, 
it hits a lot, but it's not going to be a free roll to just shove 4x of this in every blue deck that you're playing. The sky is not falling here. Right, and this is going to dovetail into our second topic tonight, which we're not moving on to yet, but at some point you have to cut cards. Like, you can't just be like, minor missteps, good, I will shove it into my deck. What four cards are you cutting? What two cards are you cutting? What one card are you cutting for one copy of this? And what is the overall impact in your deck building? And, and like, it, it's just, you don't just shove this into blue decks. I, I would like to be generic YouTube commenter for a second. Oh, good. I love that guy. Yeah. What do you think of minor misstep? Just generic. That's the entire question. I know that we want to add it in, but I'm not suggesting any cards to take out. Um. So, yeah, my name is YouTuber. Oh, yeah. Uh I'll uh, fix the language a little bit. No minor misstep? Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> yeah, your first comment was too friendly. The last couple here will probably go much more quickly. We've kind of gone through the major players of the set, and now we're going to touch on a couple of fringe playable things before moving on to topic two. And the next one here is Shuldred's Edict. One in a black for an instant. You choose one. Each opponent sacrifices a non-token creature, each opponent sacrifices a creature token, or each opponent sacrifices a planeswalker. And holy moly, that is a range of useful abilities on one card. Do we think this is better or worse than the split second one? Oh, that's tough. That's that's the whole conversation. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's the entire conversation we had about this card. Split second, obviously nutty, uncounterable. If your opponent blanks on their grizzle brand it's gone without drawing seven cards uh, a lot to like about sudden edict the way sudden edict falls off is if your opponent just has a second creature around or they go somewhere else and cast a planeswalker edict hitting planeswalker is i think bigger than it hitting a token creature which uh, by that of course i mean merit lage a lot of the Merit Lage decks, they play around Sudden Edict by playing out a couple Dinguses, like they have an Elvish Reclaimer, they got a Sylvan Safekeeper, and then they're protected from Edict. The day that this was spoiled on Twitter, so many Dark Depths players were flipping their lids. Yeah, I mean, they were mad about Baleful Mastery too, and that's not a card that's ever been in a deck. I don't even know what that card does. I, I do need to correct you there. I believe uh, Dr. Michael Levine top aided with two copies in the sideboard of his mono black deck uh at the big seg event good for dr michael levine and uh phil you know what we do for a living i've played the card too but i mean seriously as a removal spell in the metagame uh baleful mastery didn't do anything and i think that this card is slightly better than that but decks that want edicts i think you're still miles behind sudden edict overall in my opinion, Sudden Edict is where you want to be if you are going to run four copies of an Edict. If you want a fifth copy, Shouldred's Edict seems like an absolute slam dunk to me. And if you specifically, specifically really have trouble with Merit Lodge decks, this is about the best Edict possible to fight that deck specifically. But when I think about Merit Lodge in the metagame right now, I, I'm not thinking about it. Yeah, Merit who? Merit can't beat initiative, forget about it? Yeah, I don't think so. From the combo player perspective, the best part of this card is the flavor text. Congratulations, I am entertained. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, you should start shouting that when you storm off. Or when your opponent has like one counter spell and you fail it three times. All right, on that note, let's move on to our final card here. Soulless Jailer, which is two colorless mana for a 0-4 artifact creature Phyrexian Golem. Brian is making faces in response. Permanent cards in graveyards can't enter the battlefield. Players can't cast non-creature spells from graveyards or exile. Yeah, this card's kind of dumb. Uh, like, it's... I don't think it's a good card, for one. There is one specific spot where it's going to infuriate me, and that's out of Winota decks in CEDH, because this shuts off everything that Winota doesn't want to deal with without stopping Winota herself from triggering, and it's also a non-human creature that arrives on the curve before Winota does. Phil is smiling ear to ear, Bryant looks like he needs to change his pants, and I'm grumpy about it. I, I want to point out the weirdest thing about this card. Permanent cards in graveyards can't enter the battlefield, but you can cast Uro. 
because he does not arrive into the battlefield from the graveyard. It is cast to the stack, at which point it resolves to the battlefield. So there's just some unintuitive wording on this where it doesn't stop Gravecrawler, it doesn't stop Hogak. Uh, there's just it, anything that gets cast, any creature that's cast out of the graveyard is not touched by this. But players can't cast non creature spells from the graveyard or exile. So it does turn off Snapcaster Mage or Underworld Breach or whatever. It's also very weird to me that it's a 0 4. Like whoever designed this card said, we need this to live through Lightning Bolt, but I can't figure out why. Yeah, I, I'm confused about the existence of this card. Uh, I think the Winota Lobby just stormed Watsi one day and held Marrow hostage and were like, hey, you got to design exactly this stupid thing for exactly us that won't get played at any other place. Yeah, this is the best example of like a niche card I've ever seen. Like, I am a Winota player, so like this is absolutely my jam and one of the cards that I'm very excited about, but don't go around calling this like, oh, this is just colorless rest in peace that can see play everywhere because it, it does miss stuff. And the the card that this reminds me of, I forget the name of it. Maybe Bryant will remember. They printed some two mana artifact a few years ago when Gift Storm. Amulet of Safekeeping. Amulet of Safekeeping. Is that it? That is it. It's from M20. Yes. Okay. So it was when Gift Storm was at the near the top or at least tier 1.5 in modern this is a two mana artifact whenever you become the target of a spell or ability and opponent controls counter it unless they pay one and creature tokens get minus one minus oh just a two mana artifact that perfectly answers grape shot and empty the warrens <laughs> like uh, a development card if we've ever seen one and this solace jailer looks like it's about in the same pocket as that card for whatever reason I don't know, but clearly development was like, we need a card that does the following things. Here it is. I will say this. The one difference between Amulet of Safekeeping and Solus Jailer, and I can't believe that we're actually making this comparison on the podcast, is Solus Jailer stops you from doing your thing, where Amulet of Safekeeping allows your opponent to do the entire thing, but go, well, you can't do this very one thing at the end, which by the time you get to that point, that card shouldn't matter anymore. But Soul's Jailer just stops you at the get-go, which is a lot more important. Yes. In, in case our listeners haven't heard the language development card before, the set design team comes up with, like, they're given the flavor of the set, and they're told, you know, fill out the file with cards that should exist in this world. And then that's handed off to development, who move all the numbers around and make sure it works and balances the metagame and stuff. Cards that come directly out of development and skip the entire creative process exists to solve a specific problem like great sable stag was a development card in the fairies meta uh the amulet of safekeeping very clearly development card maybe i just don't play enough standard to know what the problems are in that format but it wouldn't surprise me to learn there's some very specific reason for this stupid thing all right so we've got some things that we should be excited about for the purposes of legacy and a few other formats as well so briefly at the tail end of this episode here, let's talk about how to decide what to cut from a deck, and why don't we focus on when we are deck building here? Because deciding what do you cut when you're building your deck and deciding what are you cutting in post-sideboard games are like very different issues. So I bet we all approach this very differently. So Brian, why don't we start with you? You're, you're given some brew, you have to tune it. How are you deciding what doesn't make the cut? The first thing that I make sure my deck does is execute its plan against a goldfish. And if it doesn't do that, or if I'm gummed up with all these niche answers to problems that I could conceive in my head, but may or may not actually come up in a game of magic, those niche answers are the first thing to be cut. I need a critical mass of threats. I need a critical mass of uh, removal against normal things. Like, I'll play... Swords to Plowshares and Prismatic Ending before I play the Path to Exile or whatever. Like, why would I need a ninth spot removal spell? What specific question am I answering here? And if I can't give myself, if I look at a card and I don't immediately spring forth into my brain five to ten main deck targets for it, then I'm probably not going to put that card in my deck. And then if my deck can fully function against expected normal things, and I still have one or two slots, then I can start to 
predict a metagame or whatever and fill out those, you know, minor misstep kind of deck building slots. But generally, I want to execute my plan and I want to be prepared for commonly played plans from my opponent. And those are the first 60 slots in the deck. When I receive donation decks, one of the first things that I do is I look for the cute cards. And we all know what I'm talking about here. Something that's a little bit cheeky that the person wants to see happen. And then I'll ask them. They're like, oh, well, I'm playing this combo because it's really cool when you get to do X, Y, and Z. While I would agree it is cool when you get to assemble Ultron or whatever. Voltron? I don't know words. Things. Yeah, it's cool, but ultimately, I'm in the business of trying to win games, so I usually look for the fat that can be cut from deck lists, and it's not that I don't want to have fun. I have loads of fun playing combo decks, but I'm usually looking for the the cheeky card. Like, sometimes, like, for example, uh, you might see Telman Performance in the sideboard of uh, Storm Deck with Burning Wish, and I'm like, we gotta get that out of here. Yeah, it would be really funny if we decked our lands opponent, but is that really what we're looking to do here? That sort of thing. And when we're talking about like a deeper level of deck building and we're we're looking to cut, sometimes I start to reevaluate standards that people haven't thought of in a long time. So one that I'm probably known for is I cut Infernal Tutor for Wishclaw Talisman, which a lot of people thought I wasn't taking seriously at the time. So sometimes it requires you to go back. Like this week, I made a five-color The Epic Storm list, and at the end of the day after trying it, I was like, are we trying too hard to keep brainstorm? Should I just cut brainstorm? Cutting brainstorm from a storm from a storm deck seems ridiculous, but at the end of the day, nothing is truly uncuttable and you have to start re-examining things that people haven't thought about in a long time. One of the things that I'm often looking for is ratios of different card types. So how many of this effect do I think I need versus how many are in the deck? And can I adjust those ratios appropriately if I need to sideboard? So a lot of times I'll look at a mana base and I will go, how many basics are in this deck? Do my fetch lands actually fetch out these basics when I need them in appropriate ratios? Because if you're playing a basic forest and only two of your fetch lands will go and get that, it doesn't actually do you a lot of good. Or in terms of removal, if I only have four removal spells in my entire main deck, I'm probably going to go like, hey, this is not enough. I need to get more copies of this in here. So a lot of times I will start by looking for what is there not enough of, what is there too much of, when I'm trying to do my tuning and making my cuts. And the other big thing I'm looking at is what can I take out to improve the consistency of the deck? Like what is an outlier that doesn't contribute to the core plan? Kind of like what Brian was talking about. Yeah, I had a, a deck tech coaching session just today where the player's list had three lightning bolt, two abrade, three ponder, two expressive iteration. Looking at that on paper was just sort of like, what has gone awry here? And talking through it with him card by card, I thought his numbers added up. Like really, uh, he had done the work and I need these specific things in these specific sort of situations. I have enough card selection to get there. It was a pretty proactive deck, so you don't need four EIs in that. If your opponent's already dead, it's just a thing you can find if you start to fall behind. And that kind of is going back to Brian's point of, uh, you know, you, you don't have to start a deck with four Ponder uh, or four Brainstorm. And you don't have to play four of something if it doesn't make sense. If you're trying to execute one thing and then you build in the support package underneath the thing, Three ponders can make just perfect sense. Uh, it makes it might make more sense than being too low on your action. Sometimes there's also value to be gained by not doing the normal thing. So we talk all about this a lot with Brewer's Advantage, but specifically cutting cards that everyone would expect that you would be playing. And there's the same instance that has happened twice in my life, and it's had pretty good results. So if we go back to the year 2011, 
James Rinkowitz won Grand Prix Providence with no band, with no force of wills in it. Just four mental misstep. James gained a really large amount of advantage because people didn't know James didn't have force of will in his deck. So people just played around force of will throughout the entire event. He beat a bunch of combo decks on the back of just mental misstep. He also had days, but yeah, no force of will. And I, the funny twist in this story is in the finals, he played against Hivemind, where Days is nutso busto, but Force of Will's a blank. So his deck was accidentally perfectly tuned for the other deck of the tournament, which was Hivemind combo, which was also having its breakout weekend. Correct. So another example of this is during the height of the Deathrite era, Edgar Malgahays, and I'm, I'm butchering this. I'm sorry, Edgar. Uh, Brian, you look like you want to correct me. I'm pretty sure it's Magayesh. Sure, we'll go with that. But uh, I also, I don't know. I've only heard it on coverage. So I don't know him personally. Edgar is known for being a very good player, most notably known playing Amulet Titan in Modern. Well, Edgar was testing out these pile brews with Deathrite and was just looking to beat Grixistalver in the mirror. And I queued into Edgar a bunch and routinely lost to Edgar because Edgar always had turn one thought season to turn to him, could never beat him. I met Edgar in real life at a GP much later, and Edgar told me, oh, Bryant, the reason I always had it against you is I didn't play Force of Will, and you just respected it the entire time. I'm like, oh my, like, blew my mind. Uh, and I was just like, that makes so much sense that you just always had thought season to him because Edgar was maxing out on them in order to be better against the blue decks of the format. So sometimes you have these really rational thoughts for not doing the the main play, and it ends up being justifiable, but no one else has thought about cutting force of will in a decade or whatever. I think a lot of recent innovation in legacy has come from people who are willing to cut things that are normally played to try something new. Um, so snuff out in what was previously blue red Delver is a great example of that, where, you know, you need to adjust your deck to be lower to the ground. And so you make the hard cuts in order to actually make that happen. Right. And one of the people who did a lot of work on the Delverless Delver or anti-dichotomy Delver, whatever they were calling it, was Isaac Bullwinkle, who is 17 years old. He is younger than the core of that deck is by a lot. And he just didn't have collective memory to hold him back on brewing something that made sense to him as a magic player, kind of inducing the the knowledge from the ground up. And we got a cool thing out of that. So kind of wrapping this up here, don't be afraid to question traditional deck building. That said, te there tends to be something to decks that have had the same established core for a long time. So if you are going about making cuts of core cards from a deck, make sure you have a reason to do that, and make sure that reason just isn't, I want to play this card. You should have a good solid reason for why you are making your cuts. Although, don't be afraid to try something crazy from time to time, because a lot of times you'll have failed experiments, but every once in a while you might do that one thing that might actually break a tournament wide open. Before we sign off, I'd like to share an antidote. This person in the Storm Discord loves Ad Nauseam Tendrils. Hey, more power to you. I don't care what you play. But they said that they don't like the Epic Storm because it's always changing. And that they like Ant because it's been the same deck for over the last decade. And that, to me, is just super funny. Uh, and, I mean, people have different reasons for wanting to play whatever. They might like not having to get new cards or whatever. But not changing over a long period of time is not a sign of something good. Your deck should be making cuts. It should be trying to push the limits. It should be trying to move forward. And don't be afraid. It's natural. It's going to happen. Uh, and my last like quick hits for decisions when you're deciding on a card for your deck, what does it do specifically in context of the format? Like A lot of the times, people will be like, what do you think about Archmage's Charm in this deck? And my response will be, well, what does that do? And they will tell me, it counters a spell, draws two cards, or takes something that costs one. And I did not want them to read the card to me. That's not useful. I know what the card does. What does it do for the deck that the deck needs help doing? And then, if we identify that need, what 
card that's currently in the deck, does this card do the job better than? So fully flesh out your thought process. What does this do specifically in context of what you're trying to solve and who does it do it better than? If you can't answer all those questions, then cut the card. Mm -hmm.